theater in Amsterdam and buy a beer. And I don't mean just like an old paper cup. I'm talking about a glass of beer. And in Paris, you can buy a beer at McDonald's. And you know what they call a, a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris? They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? They get the metric system. Welcome to the Hookup on Film with Adam and Tony. How's it going? Yo, yo, yo. What's going on, Tony? Welcome, my friend. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Hookup on Film. We have an action-packed show for you today. We're getting started on time for once. Yes, we're, this is how it's going to be from now on. Which is excellent news because I got a heart out, got to walk a dog. Oh, I hear you. It's bad. Uh <laughs> We got an action-packed show, you guys. Yes. We are talking about underrated 70s movies by yes. big actors. We have unpopular movie opinions. Yes. We're going to be talking about great movies your co-host has never heard of, <laughs> which is so much easier task for Tony, because he can probably <laughs> just pull up one out of his butt. I have two that hopefully you've never heard of, at least one of them. We shall see. We shall see. Fingers crossed for me. We're going to be talking about a movie from the 1950s that we enjoy. We are going to be talking about uh, a great movie that we're going to remake. We're going to recast a great movie because that's what every movie is now. It's a Marvel movie or it's a remake. (laughs) We're going to be talking about our favorite popcorn movies. Uh, Stephen King. Uh, We're going to be talking about Stephen King movies because this past weekend... If you're listening to this as uh, when it first posted, a uh, remake starring Zach Efron, a fire Firestarter, uh, was released this weekend. So we're going to be talking about some some of our favorite Stephen King movies. And lastly, we're going to be talking about a movie from the past five years that we call a classic. But first, actually, we got a guest coming up. Tony, where's our guest? He should be here any minute. I've been texting him within the last seven minutes, so he right. must have ran into something. But he'll be joining us in a second. All right, we'll get to You know what? We're going to start we'll it without him. Start it up. We got lots of stuff to talk about. Lots of stuff. Let's start it up. So we're doing our movie battle to start off. But it's not a movie battle. It is an actor battle. It is Jack Nicholson versus Al Pacino. Oh, Damn, yeah. that is a tough one. You could probably do no wrong with who you pick. But I'll let you go first. Who you got, Nicholson or Pacino? Um, I have Pacino. I have Nicholson. You know, I've been back and forth on this all day. Just say Who Pacino because I'm going to go with Nicholson. I'm going Pacino. I'll go Pacino. Uh, go ahead. I'm, I'm working on getting Adam in here. All right. So, yeah, to me, I actually think it's a lot easier. Like, I was thinking about it, and I was like, Oh, maybe I'll go Nicholson because the back half of his career, I think, is a lot better than Al Pacino's back half. But then I thought about it, and his front half is better than Al Pacino's front half. <laughs> so 
I mean, I think not just I enjoy Jack Nicholson's movies more. I mean, in terms of like their acting chops, you can do no wrong. But personally, I'll take like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I'll take Batman. I'll take um, uh, um, You Can't Handle the Truth. Uh, I want to say, keep wanting to say, League of Their Own. A few <laughs> good men. A few good men. Thank you. Um, I'll take Chinatown. Um, and you know, it's like Pacino, like, I don't care. Like, part of it is like, I don't care for the Godfather, right? What? We've talked, we've talked about this. It's it's a good movie. It's a fine movie. I'm not going to like hate on it. It's just like not my bag. Um, you know, like Scarface is a good movie. I'm not like super enthralled with Scarface. Um, Dog Day Afternoon's a good movie. I'm not super enthralled with like Dog Day Afternoon. Um, and then I, I actually I really don't like Heat. Heat is it's got some like two good set pieces of like bank robberies, Ooh, and it's going. a it's a lot of boring. <laughs> I, I gave that movie a second try too during the pandemic, and there is a lot of like downtime and boring time. And even that De Niro Pacino's like we talked about that too, like in a previous podcast, like that uh, table scene, like it just it doesn't do it for me. <laughs> And uh, even if I did think it was close, and if even if I like Pacino's earlier movies uh, more, it's just ever since Scent of a Woman, like that's just who Al Pacino is, and it works sometimes. But it's a lot of Al Pacino just screaming, and it's uh, you know. So that's you know why what? I'm you going Nicholson. Let, uh, pause right there. I'm going to resend this so he can join. Okay, and we'll pick up right here. Okay. All right. Sounds good. We, when we uh, when you next hear us, we'll get uh, our guests' uh, take of Nicholson versus Pacino. Yes. 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 You're back. Nice. All right. Back. So, so you were, so you were saying. Hopefully, he'll join here in a second. I sent it two different ways. But Pacino. Okay. Number one. This was a lot of harshness towards Pacino. This is, this is it wasn't. I didn't say anything bad about Pacino personally. I just don't care for his movies. It's it's a personal taste. I know, I know. But uh, he's in a great lawyer movie that I enjoy a lot. Can you know which movie that is? He's in a couple actually good lawyer movies. Um, have you ever seen Injustice for All? Nope. Have you ever seen The Devil's Advocate? Uh, no, I've heard. I always heard The Devil's Advocate. Well, those are two uh, Pacino as a lawyer, which are great. Really cheesy, but uh, Nicholson, I could see being more cooler. Um, he's got more cooler roles, you know. Um, I don't know if he's a better actor per se. Um, you know, it's tough. It's tough for me. Um, Godfather is one of the greatest of all time. I know you don't. You don't enjoy it. Um, that being said, Jack Nicholson has some amazing movies too. I also think that even if you thought the early stuff was close, I think the later stuff is like so clearly in Nicholson's favor. Like since 1990 on, I think Jack Nicholson just has so many better movies. Um, I mean, he's got The Departed. Well, yeah. Um, you know, even like the early 90s, like stuff like On, which like, you know, like I said, I don't really care for Heat. Oh, we got our guest. Hey, how's it going, my man? Gentlemen, how are you guys? Hi. We're doing good. Welcome to the show. I really All appreciate right. you guys having me. Awesome, awesome, We're awesome. Looking forward to it. Our, our cool. guest is also named Adam, so this should be a fun podcast. Uh, give out your Twitter handle, Adam. 
My Twitter handle is Adam is absurd thirty four. Awesome. So you came in a little late. We're having our. We just started. We're having a our movie debate of Nicholson versus Pacino. Who do you got? I have. I'm gonna go with Jack Nicholson. Okay. Oh, go against one, Tony. The Adams have it. <laughs> okay, but and, and I'm gonna tell you why. All right. Jack and and this don't get me wrong. These guys are both phenomenal actors. They've both done. We all know the films that they've done and their their credits, but I do believe if you look at the body of Jack Nicholson's work, especially over the last you know twenty some odd years, it's been stronger than Al Pacino's. I haven't really ever pretty much after oh with Pacino after I don't know about after any given Sunday, there really haven't been that many. Pacino films that I really dug very much. That was, that was part of my argument is that after 1990, even if you thought it was close, like Jack Nicholson's latter half of his he, career just blows out Pacino's. Pacino's got one one greater movie after um, the movie you just said, and it's Christopher Nolan's Insomnia. That movie's pretty good. He's good in that movie. But even still, yeah, that's he's like good Insomnia. But I mean, it, it's with me, Al Pacino also. And this is historically with some of the actors he's been. He's not always the best, the best actor on the screen where Jack Nicholson is. Yeah, that's that's in true. Pretty much any in pretty much any scene he's been in throughout his whole career. I can't that's think true. of. And here and here's a good point too. I mean, you look at the first Batman movie that Tim Burton put out. Uh, Nicholson's one that got head billing on that. No, you're right. I, well, you know, part of that was like contract negotiations. It's like they needed a Joker, so like they like we're gonna go with like maybe Robin Williams, but Nicholson's like mm-hmm. no, I'm the guy. You got to give me a bajillion dollars, and I get first billing. And they did. And they did. That's they true. did. And I think that um, and, and a little side point to this, you know, a lot of people point to Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker as the best performance of the Joker that character at least ever. And I kind of disagree with that. Not in the fact that it wasn't the best per se, but I think Nicholson did just as good a job. He just did it differently. I mean, I think it took a lot more of a stretch to see Nicholson do what he did than to see Heath do what he did. But that's just me. Oh that's my fun. gosh! Okay, now no, now but what, what is Jack? Part. What's Jack? What's Jack doing before this movie to make him do that? Okay, but he, I mean, you've, you've, he's always had like that dickish quality to him, like Jake Getty. Is an asshole. Knight's Tale. He's a he, uh, Heath Ledger's pretty dickish in Knight's Tale. Oh yeah, and um, <laughs> what's the one where he needs to date Julia Stiles? Ten things I hate about you. There yes, you right. that's the first time I think we saw him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like he Heath Ledger was a a pretty boy. Like he was he was trying to be a movie star. And like even with like uh, Brokeback Mountain, which was the movie that Nolan like was like this is the reason I'm casting Ledger. There was no way you saw any of the Joker in that. I mean, I, I like Jack Nicholson's Joker a lot. Don't get me wrong, but uh, I mean to say that like you hadn't seen it before. We've seen a little bit of like Nicholson do that before. We hadn't seen Heath like that performance is just in a league of its own for me. I that Heath Ledger performance. And, and this might be a little bit, and we may talk about this a little bit later on our opinions. But I believe, and this is just my strong belief, if he did not pass away you may have different feelings on the issue and you're going to say i'm wrong but um, because you I are believe, wrong I, but but i believe that fed into everybody i mean you can't deny that that that's the magic in the movie is that he 
he didn't, you know, he gave it his all, you know, that's why we're saying it right now. That's why you're saying it. It's a performance. He gave it his all. When you look at Jack and the makeup he had to wear, I mean, it was a lot more. That's just my opinion, though. We Everyone's got a different opinion. Well, it's a good thing Heath Ledger didn't wear any makeup in The Dark Knight. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, Jack Nicholson and Al Pacino both made movies in the 1970s. So let's talk about some underrated 70s movies by big actors. Okay. What do you got, Adam? Adam, Adam our guest. <laughs> Are you there, Adam? Is any Adam there? I'm here, but uh, oh, oh, he just got disconnected. Oh Hopefully no, he'll be back in a second. Uh, an underrated movie I got from the '70s, um, one that I was thinking about because it was a lead into this topic, was um, Jack Nicholson in a movie called Missouri Breaks. It's him and uh, Marlon Brando. The movie is pretty highly rated. It has like a 80 something percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Not that that means anything, but uh, it is actually really, really underrated and unheard of. And it's a pretty good Western. Randy Quaid's even in it. Um, it's really good. Um, welcome back, Adam. Thank you. I, I was just talking about uh, my underrated 70s pick was a movie called Missouri Breaks. Have you ever heard of this movie? I've heard of it, have not seen it. It is uh, Jack Nicholson and Marlon Brando. It's okay. 1976. It's a Western. Um, Arthur Penn directed it. Um, it is uh, really good, and it's definitely worth uh, watching. And he is gone again. But you, uh, Adam, what do you got? My co-host, what do you have? Hello? Did I lose everybody? Maybe they'll be back. So I will be continuing here. So Missouri Breaks is a really, really good movie. Yo, Tony, yeah. can you hear me? I can hear you now. I, uh, I, muted, I muted myself to cough and I forgot to unmute myself. No, it's all right. I'm, like, <laughs> I'm losing everybody. everybody. You know, I was, I was going to say, like, oh my, like, I have my old microphone in. I don't have the new one that keeps crapping no. out on me. So it's like, you can't hear me again. What the heck? No, right. no. Um, Adam, our guest, what is your underrated pick from the 70s? Well, I thought of a couple of them, but. All right, what do you got? What, what I'm going to do, I'm going to go with, um, and you, you, you probably have heard of this, uh, 1975's Rollerball with James Caan. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Loved that version of that movie, and I, and I kind of loved everything about it. Um, it was directed by Norman Jewison, who, um, if you don't know, also did In the Heat of the Night, oh, Cincinnati Kid, movies like that. And it was a great movie, I think, about dystopian future. And I thought the performances were great in it. Uh, the cinematography was phenomenal. Uh, it was kind of, kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it was really kind of Schlocky? ahead of its time. No, it was really kind of ahead of its time <laughs> the way they did it. Yeah. And kind of its uh, view on society and how the future is going to end up. Um, but it also mixed in, you know, a lot of action. And, you know, it, it was revolved around a very violent sport. And... James Conn's phenomenal. John Houseman, you can't beat John Houseman. Um, oh, John Houseman's great. Oh, God, he's good. And uh, I, But I also want to mention another one I didn't want to leave out was uh, The Ruling Class. Yes. With uh, Peter O'Toole. 
and that was directed by uh peter medak who did uh he actually peter medak actually did uh some episodes of the wire and he did the movie the changeling um this movie though i love that movie it, it, it this i think is something that's right in peter o'toole's wheelhouse i love peter o'toole and this this role couldn't have gone to anybody but him this the planet playing an absolute paranoid schizophrenic um the movie is is one of the, my favorite dark comedies of all time I, it, it, it's i definitely have to watch this one this one is definitely definitely looks good um it says it stars peter o'toole um carol brown william mervin it is loaded with a lot of people um what do you got adam what is yours that you picked all right so i like 1970s aren't really my bag i've seen like just mainly a lot of the main ones so and it's a movie i've talked about before so i'm not going to spend too much time on it but it's a movie i i really love and it's a 1971 celeste picture show by peter bogdanovich um it's got uh i mean it stars jeff bridges when he's like uh 16 17 years old he might have been older but he plays a high schooler in it and it's just really wild seeing like a super young sexy jeff bridges that's um it's got cloris leachman who's obviously not a big star but like she still looks 80 in this movie from <laughs> 1971 she does um she does. And it's got a super young Sybil Shepherd, who again was uh, probably like in her early twenties, and uh, she's really good in the movie. But she's also super hot. <laughs> she she is actually. I remember renting that one when I was in college and watching it, and I really, really liked that movie. I mean, when you look at it, I'm looking at it right now. It had a budget of 1.3 million, and it made 29 million. So it made 29 times its budget back. That's pretty good. What? What's really weird about the last picture show to me is that it's so it's a movie on like AFI's top 100 list. So and it's by Peter Bogdanovich, who went on to have a super awesome career, obviously. So it's like not that underrated. Like when Bogdanovich passed recently, it was like the first line in his obit. So it's not like some like minor movie like uh, Missouri Breaks or whatever you name. But at the same time, it's like I feel like it's completely out of the cult. No, what did you like hold on this? a second? What did you mean a minor movie? I'm 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 not what did you mean by that? No, it's a movie like I never heard of I don't know what Missouri Breaks is. Well, because you unfortunately you are like there's a time where you just stop you don't go back and watch movies. So I know. Why, you know but 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 go on now continue. <laughs> I was just gonna say that uh <laughs> if, for like as big of a movie as it was and like it got nominated for a bunch of Oscars and again it has Jeff Bridges and Sybil well, Shepherd and yeah, that's but it's it's part of the reason I also think people haven't seen it because it's just like completely gone from the zeitgeist. Like there's some 1970s movies oh, no, you're right. that are super you're iconic, right. but like you know what I mean? It's like it's never, right. I don't think it's ever been parodied by The Simpsons, you know, for example, which isn't no. the end all be all, but you know, the show's been around for 80 years. You think at one point they could have done some sort of last picture show spoof, and you know, maybe Ooh. they did, but. Well, with a movie as what's the word I'm looking for? With a movie as as well known, or it was up for Academy Awards. You're right; it doesn't really get talked about a lot, and that's why I thought it was a good pick that you picked it. All right. So, speaking of Missouri Breaks, I think this leads us perfectly to our next topic of a great movie your co-host has never heard of. Right. So, for you, again, you probably could just go with Missouri Breaks again. 
Um, it's a lot easier for you than for me. But I got I got two movies mm-hmm. for you. Tell me if you've heard of them. The first one is this one. I think you may have heard of, and it's 1997's Cube. You know what? I have heard of that movie, but I have never seen that movie. Oh, okay. So yeah, that's what I mean. But it, honestly, it is one of those movies that has allured me for a very long time. So if you haven't seen Cube, it's this um, low-budget horror thriller movie. Um, I mean, it's from, like, it feels like it's from 1997, to be honest. Um, You can definitely see, if you see it now, there's definitely a lot of saw in there. Um, It's directed by this guy named Vincenzo Natale, and it stars absolutely nobody you've heard of. Um, And it's about, uh, like, these six people that get dropped in uh like a room like they don't know how they got there and they're in this cubed room and they have to go from like they have to figure out they go from like different rooms to rooms in order to get out of the cube but if you go in the wrong room uh you get murdered Uh oh this doesn't sound like something you usually watch so i I I know that's what i mean you should definitely adam have you uh seen or heard of cube yes i've heard of cube and unfortunately i also saw cube too (laughs) <laughs> yeah so one of the beauties of cube is that um because it's super low budget like you don't know how they got in there at all and frankly i don't think you need to know it's there are these like six strangers they're in a room they need to go from room to room to escape and that's all you need to know and i heard that cube too like explains like how the cube got built and like how they got these people in there and it just over explains everything and so uh, i heard it also falls on its face am i correct in that <laughs> I'd say so. That's pretty accurate. <laughs> so here's a movie, my second movie. I don't think you've heard of this at all because it's a tiny indie that came out during the pandemic, but it's a movie I really like. It's called Shit House. I have never heard of that movie. Yes. Nor have I. I did it. <laughs> Shit okay. House. Let me look up this movie. This movie, it's directed, it's starring, and I think he wrote it to this guy. His name is Cooper Rafe. He was born in 1997, so he was 23 when he made this movie. It got 6.7 out of 10. That's not bad. I like it a lot better than that. Um, <laughs> it it um, so it came out like in the early days of the pandemic. It was entered in South by Southwest in 2020, which is like April 2020. So like uh, really when the world started to go to shit. Um, and I think at one like I think they ended up doing it um, digitally or something, and it ended up winning south by southwest um and i looked at you can stream it on showtime and fubo i think really yeah and um so it's it's this really tiny indie and it stars him as um a freshman in college and he meets up with uh his ra played by dylan galula who she's not super known but if you've ever seen uh the show unbreakable kimmy schmidt yeah I've, um, i've watched a little bit of that so Jane Krakowski's daughter, um, her name is Anthibi in the show. Uh-huh. Anyways, it's it's that actress. And it's this two-hander little indie. Um, and Cooper Rafe plays this character um, that he's like kind of struggling with college. And um, he's kind of uh, talking out his feelings as him and uh, this Dylan Galula character just like kind of wander throughout this like LA town at night. And it's like, takes place all in one night. It probably costs like $50,000 to make. And uh, it just, it really struck with me. Like um, I definitely like 
not necessarily related to him per se, because like I had a bunch of friends that I went to college with beforehand. Um, but at the same time, it's just like it just felt really honest and emotional and poignant and powerful, and it just it emotionally connected with me still. And uh, it was really good, and I highly recommend it. And it's a super tiny indie. And he's got a new movie coming out this year called um, Cha Cha Real Smooth. It made me think of it, but I'm glad I had a movie that could stump Tony. You got me. You got mm-hmm. me. What What did you get at? What did you get, Adam? Okay, so I have a few of these, which I'll go through swiftly. Okay. Uh, the first one. It's kind of funny you mentioned. Did you cut out again? <laughs> This is just a poor, poor, a poor guest keeps cutting out. <laughs> but uh, my movie is going to be a simple plan. Have you ever heard of this movie? Yeah, it's a Coen Brothers movie. No, it is not a Coen Brothers movie. Oh, it's a simple plan. All right, can you guys hear me again? Yes. Okay, okay. you're back. Real quick, I'm going through my movie. A okay. simple plan. Have you ever heard of a simple plan? Yes. Who directs a simple plan? I'm not sure who directs The Simple Plan, but... Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi. It's a Sam okay. Raimi movie. But go on. I'm sorry. Continue now, Adam. What were your movies? Oh, my movies. So, it's really funny, Adam, that you mentioned uh, The Last Picture Show a little bit ago, because the first movie I'm going to mention in this section is a movie from 1968 called Targets. Oh, yeah. And it is the very first movie that Peter Bogdanovich actually directed. And Look it's, at that synergy. Oh yeah, and it had um. It, it was one of Boris Karloff's last movies. He had a couple movies come out after that. But this is this is one of the last ones he filmed. He was pretty sick at the time. And the funny thing is, he was not funny, but interesting things I should say. There's nothing funny about this, but um, he was only contracted to film for two days, but he liked the script so much and and he actually refused the pay he was supposed to get for those days and stayed an extra five days oh. to film on there because he enjoyed it that much. But it's a movie about a kind of a, a disillusioned uh, Vietnam veteran who came back and he ends up basically going on a killing spree, killing his uh, immediate family. And then he goes out and starts killing random people via high powered sniper rifle. And the movie kind of interconnects with Boris Karloff's story as an aging horror actor, which is exactly what he was. And it's pretty good. Peter Bogdanovich actually does play a bit part. Not just say a bit part. It's a supporting role in it. Uh, he has significant screen time. But it's very creative. And I think for someone's first feature movie, um, it's phenomenal. It's a good watch. It's not a, it's not a terribly long movie. So if you can fit it in, um, I definitely suggest it. My next one was um, The Naked City. Oh, yes. And that one, that stars one of my favorite character actors of all time, which is Barry Fitzgerald. And he was in a lot of John Ford movies, but he is actually in a starring role, a rare starring role in this one. And what's great about this is it's, it's all filmed in New York. And, you know, it's, it's an older, it's a black and white film. And it's filmed like a documentary, but it's actually a regular feature motion picture, but filmed as if it was like a documentary. And it's a murder mystery. And that was directed also by Jules Dassin. And the, other, the last one I had was a movie called Libeled Lady. Ooh, never heard of that movie. And this is early 30s. And this is going to tie into something I'm going to talk about probably later, too. But um, it stars William Powell, who is, you know, 
series and pretty much everything he's ever done. And it also has Myrna Loy in it, and I'm a big Myrna Loy guy. And they were also together in the Thin Man films. It also has Gene Harlow and Spencer Tracy. And it's kind of a zany comedy in a way, but it's very, very well done, especially for its time. And it, it's just it's just a very good time. So there's three different types of movies I wanted to go with. One's kind of a you know a murder mystery. One's kind of an action um, drama piece, and then one is kind of a zany comedy itself. But all three of those movies I definitely recommend if you haven't seen them to get I, on them. I definitely am going to watch Targets. It's I had a magazine growing up, and it had like movie posters in it, and I would always stare at the Targets poster. Mm-hmm. I just never, never got around to watching it, but I bet that one is cool. All of them are actually sound really cool. That's really cool. Awesome. All right, so what are we going on to next here? Before you want to talk about Blood Simple or um, a Simple Plan, which, by the way, real quick, the Coen yeah. Brothers movie. I, I was the title I was thinking of is Blood Simple, which is oh, the Coen Brothers movie. That's a great movie too. A but Simple I, Plan. I haven't, shockingly, I haven't seen it, but I have heard of it. With Billy Simple Bob Plan Thornton. is really, really good movie. Um, Billy Bob Thornton stars in it, and so does Bill Paxton and Bridget Fonda. It is, again, a murder mystery. Um, again, this movie is another one of those that kind of, it came out in 1998, September 1998. And it's really, I enjoy it. I don't want to give too much away. There's a lot of, if you like Sam Raimi, um, definitely worth checking out it has a lot of what sam raimi does um uh, millennial socks what do you think about sam raimi you a fan of his i like the original spider-man movie which okay. un- unsurprisingly i have not seen any evil dead or army of darkness okay okay because... how about how about you adam you ever seen any of those movies? army of darkness or evil dead oh yeah oh. evil dead uh he also if i'm not mistaken he wrote did he write Darkman? Yes, he sure did, and directed yeah. the first one. Yes, yes, the first one. Yeah, with Liam Neeson. Yeah, he did do that one. He did a really good movie too, which I guess I'll just throw out there too that you might not have heard of either, Adam. It's called The Gift from nineteen ninety. It's like ninety seven. It's got it's loaded with like Keanu. It starts Kate Blanchett. Oh, oh yeah, I remember, I remember the Gift. Um, that's that, pretty good. That has a Katie Holmes gets yep. that shows. The only reason I know of the Gift is from a, a movie you posted today, Harold and Kumar. Go to White Castle. That's like a subplot in it where the other guys like they sit at home and smoke and watch the gift just so they can see Katie Holmes topless. Yeah, that was that was that was the big thing. Totally forgot about that part. But that movie also had Giovanni Rabisi and Greg Kinnear in it. And uh there's a couple people that were JK Simmons is in it, Hillary Swank. Oh JK oh yeah, Hillary Swank's in that one too. I mean to me, uh, that was a movie I enjoyed a lot when it came out. Both of those movies, to me, I liked a lot. I liked the twists. There's good twists in them. Um, so I think Sam Raimi's a good director, you know, and that's those are pretty good. Really Going good. out on a limb there, Tony. Sam Raimi is a good director. Well, you Clearly, know, you mean, haven't seen The Multiverse I, of Madness. Well, what about Oz the Great and the Powerful? Wasn't so hot. I actually Spider-Man didn't mind. Three wasn't so hot. I didn't mind Oz and Great and Powerful for what it really? was. Really? It's like I'm not saying it's like good or anything, but like I saw it in the theater. It's like I get what you're going for. It's not bad. All right, here's really quick before we move on. A quick movie trivia question. What Sam Raimi movie does Leonardo DiCaprio in? 
He's Spider Man, duh. Uh, the Quick and the Dead. You ever see the Quick and the Dead? Oh yeah, the Quick and the Dead's on. Oh yeah, quite a bit. Oh yeah, oh yeah. All right, now where are we going next, my man? You know what horror movie I did see of his that I enjoyed? Uh, Sam Raimi. Drag Me to Hell. Yeah. Oh, how did you know? Yeah. Because it's an amazing, amazing movie. I love that movie. I only, I only saw it once. I saw it in the theater, and uh, it it's original. Bad. Yeah, it's an I, original I, horror movie. It's good. All right. Next, we're um, we're going to like Tony talking about Sam Raimi is a good director. We're going to uh, unpopular movie opinions. Ooh, unpopular movie opinions. Why don't you start them off? What do you got? All right, I got a super spicy one. But I also don't feel too bad because there's like a bunch of our followers who like love to shit on Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> I don't, I don't feel too bad. Like I'm about to shit on uh, Steven Spielberg. Ooh, Steven! Oh, you literally just stole one of mine. <laughs> All right, well then maybe it's not unpopular. So, I uh, Steve, there was a really good documentary about Steven Spielberg. Um, I think it's like 2017. I saw it on HBO, and there was a point where he was talking about how he was directing. The um, oh, it's not raisin in the sun. What's the oh color purple? Thank you. The color purple. Yeah. Just me being racist, mixing black movies. No, um, and he was talking about how there was like this scene early on where like he um, it was like exploring. I think maybe it was Whoopi Goldberg's character, like sexuality, and like he just didn't do it because he wasn't comfortable with it. And it's kind of that moment that clicked for me where. Um, I don't think Steven Spielberg is that good director when it comes to directing straight up dramas. Really? So when he when it comes to directing genre movies um, and action movies, I think he's absolutely incredible. Like we're going to be talking about favorite popcorn movies, and yeah. he's directed like ten of my favorite popcorn movies. Yeah. Him directing action and adventure, he's literally the he's the best at that. But when it comes to directing just straight up dramas and even something like um, Schindler's List, even because Steven Spielberg is this populist director where, um, you know, he has to his movies are supposedly for everyone. I find that his dramas don't have any style to it, like whatsoever. And I think part of that is because he wants to appeal to everyone. So when he directs straight dramas, I just, I get kind of bored by him. Um, because, like, I remember watching Moonlight. For some reason, this is the example that comes to me. A movie I didn't really care for, but you can see Barry Jenkins' style just, like, dripping throughout it all. And it's it's a pretty straightforward story, per se, you know, split into three different parts, but I at least like saw Barry Jenkins' style in it, and I don't see any Steven Spielberg style in it. That it just feels like it's a movie that my parents would enjoy. <laughs> that like if they ever recommend me, like, hey, we need to see this movie. What's this like blah movie? I'll recommend the Spielberg movie because I don't know when it's when it's not a genre action adventure movie. I don't really care for him. Well, I'll tell you what to piggyback off that, if I may. Um, I think a thing about Spielberg that kind of, here's what frustrates me about him. His best work, I think, was his first movie, when, well, basically when he did Jaws. Because he had, he didn't have the budget he has, you know, as later movies to work with. I think it made him more creative and do things that he wouldn't normally 
be comfortable doing. Now, later on in his career, when he became more successful, every actor, every actor wanted to, wanted to be in a Spielberg movie, pretty much. Now, obviously, not every actor, but every, a lot of big actors. You know, like Tom Hanks, you know, is a great example of that. So, movies like you know, Saving Private Ryan, movies like Schindler's List, those aren't great movies because of Spielberg's direction. Those are great movies because of the, of the script itself, which he didn't write on the, any of those. And also, the actors themselves, the performances were phenomenal. Liam Neeson and Ray Fiennes were unbelievable in Schindler's List. Oh, yeah. That's what I remember. Yeah. And, th- and those were things. And, and Spielberg's one of those people that his movies usually, pretty much all the time, have to have a nice, I had Terry Gilliam put it, um, nice bow tie. Every movie was is wrapped up at the end for you, either happy or it's up. It was it, it's part of that populism ending. That, like, it it up, to... it, yeah, it was like an uplifting ending on all these things. So I don't think he was very creative. So I wouldn't even put him like in the top ten directors ever. Well, uh, you know, his ne- I'm looking right now. His next movie he's got coming out. It's called The Fablemans, and it's coming out in November. And it stars Seth Rogen, Paul Dano, and Michelle Williams. And it looks like it's a drama. Uh, pretty much, it looks like a semi-biography of his life. Yeah, it's um, like the most Steven Spielberg has like ever put in a movie. Co- like coming up, he, he, you know, his thing is is like, do you like AI? Well, that was that was the thing I was going to ask you guys. If you, you have you both seen AI, then I'm assuming you have. I've seen I've seen AI. Yeah, and that okay. sucks. Okay, well, the ending has a lot to do with Spielberg, but. Um, which is why I don't like it. Imagine, imagine if the person who originally was supposed to do that movie, Stanley Kubrick, did that movie, how much better it would have been. Well, it would have been a lot different and better. It would have been better. But like, I I like Catch Me If You Can. Yeah, those are good movies. He he makes good movies. I'm not saying it's a bad director. He does, he does, but like, these aren't movies like I like to say, like, I would never, if you came over, put these movies on. They're not like I wouldn't put these any of these movies in my top hundred, but that's just me. But the thing with Catch Me If You Can is, I think, to Adam's point, is that movie is carried by Leo and Tom Hanks oh, and a little bit of Christopher Walken only because he's supporting. And the yeah. script. Those and are the just, script. But I, I, that's also a movie where I think it's a perfect example of what I'm talking about, where that movie needed a little bit more style. It needed a little bit more zip to it. That it has that Steven Spielberg blandness to it. That like when when I rewatch it, I just think it's like this movie needs well, to be like five percent better for me. I mean, it doesn't like need me. to do anything, but like I would like it to be like five percent more better if it just had a little bit of pizzazz to it. Were you like? Do you like Munich? Yeah, I really like Munich. I like a lot of his movies. That's a little stylish. I mean, that's about his most stylish. I mean, the camera work at least it's darker. It's taking different shots but you know i mean he's you know he's a i don't know you're like he said like adam said wrap it up with a little bow that's pretty much just they're not very thought-provoking movies let's put it that way you know what movie i'm going to say that i'm going to take him as a director on and supposedly he just showed up on the set every single day and took it over was poltergeist um tobe tobe hooper who directed like um Texas Chainsaw Massacre, he's the director, but Spielberg produced it. But it's duly noted that Spielberg pretty much just showed up on the set every day and told everybody what to do. Um, Spielberg, he's good, but like I did not like West Side Story. I did not think that was good. 
Um, his last movies, Bridge of Spies, put me. I didn't enjoy that. War Horse, not very good. And what's the last Kingsman. Steven Spiel, good Steven Spielberg movie that uh, you think he's made? I kind of like. I'm having trouble thinking of anything past Saving Private Ryan, and that doesn't mean that he didn't do it. Well, but... the three, the three after Saving Private Ryan are AI. Minority Report. Did you oh, like Minority I, Report? I, I actually love Minority Report. I like Minority Report. Report's a decent movie. It's good. And Catch Me If You Can. Yeah. And that these are all... To The Terminal. What did you think of The Terminal? Did not like The Terminal. No, I mean, it's not. That, it's that, not that movie good. was a pile of garbage. Now, yeah, uh, it was, even, even, it was, it, yeah, it was kind of fan fodder, I think. Even, uh, even know, Tom Hanks couldn't save that movie. Unfortunately, no. this next movie, I, I grew up in a house where my father played it over and over and over. War of the Worlds. What did you think of that movie? I can't. Let, I just. I found it really disappointing too. I felt like it is disappointing. Even Tom he Cruise can rushing, that movie. If I'm looking here, the Terminal, War of the Worlds, in Munich all came out within a year. War of the Worlds. It seems like he didn't put enough work into the movie that he should have. Um, it seems really like it's not as big as it should be for War of the Worlds. But you know, that being said. You, I think you're right. Uh, Saving Private Ryan is his last, like, yeah, this is this but, is it. But by the way, with Minority Report, I actually, I'll ride or die for Minority Report. That's a genre movie. Oh, it is. It's a Philip K. Dick book, and, you know, and that's, it's, it's, that's a good movie, um, a, a really good movie, which we'll talk about at a later time about Tom, um, Tom Cruise, but that's, he's, he's, that's a good movie. But to me, he hasn't made a good movie since Munich. I really, man, I strongly disliked Lincoln. Um, I didn't even bother seeing War Horse. I really didn't like. Now Lincoln here's the movie. I didn't like I'm the post. I didn't like Ready, Ready Player One. Ready, Ready Player One. Nope, nope. Here we go. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I didn't mind Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Okay. Well, well, you know what? Kingdom of the Crystal Skull to me is like a movie. It's okay. It's just by far the worst of the franchise. Yes, yes. It's it's not it's not the best. And but I didn't walk out of the theater angry. I just was no, like, well, no. it was it was entertaining. I don't know. When Shia LaBeouf started swinging with the monkeys, I'm like, man, I'm really <laughs> out on this movie. See, that's the thing, though. That's what's crazy, though. You know, just you probably, you were a little bit younger than me watching that movie. And if I were your age, I would have been like, I'm done. This is over with. I'm done. You well, know, let me, hey, let me ask you guys a question, though, going back to, like, Lincoln real quick. If, if Daniel Day-Lewis isn't in that movie playing Lincoln, and even someone like James Spader, is that movie even that watchable? Probably. I didn't find it watchable with Daniel Day Lewis. Well, I thought, it, I, mean, I thought it was decent with him, but I mean, like, it's it was him. He, when he was on the screen, the movie was watchable. When he was off screen, it was kind of like, meh, you know? There's Whoa. a scene, like, halfway through the movie where he's in an opera house watching a play. I'm like, is this, can he get assassinated so we can get this movie over with? <laughs> he, and, and this is a little controversial, what I'm about to say, but he he played a hand in somebody who I idolize a lot. Um, going down a really dark road. He made this movie called 1941. Oh, I love um, 1941. Um, that's a movie. That's probably one of my favorite movies of his, honestly. Um, Belushi. Um, Belushi was tagged as being like a star in that movie. And Belushi's only in the movie like 10 or 15 minutes. Um, but uh, the movie, though, I mean, it, it, it didn't do it didn't do as well as it should have. And it put a lot of pressure on Belushi, from what I heard. And it, it, it was, uh, but it's not a bad movie. Do you know it, who directed 1941? Uh, I think his name's Steven Spielberg. I, I'm, I meant Roan. 
<laughs> what did you say? Which one? I, I, I'm, I said directed. I meant to say, <laughs> do you know who wrote 1941? Uh, I'm looking at it right now. I'm shocked. I couldn't have told you unless I was looking at it. Zemeckis. I did not know that. Yeah, a Robert Zemeckis, Steven Spielberg movie flop. That's, I guess, maybe don't catch John Belushi, but. Well, the thing about it is, as you look at the numbers now, mm-hmm. I mean, it made almost three times its budget back. So it didn't necessarily what I would call flop. But when you're comparing it to Jaws, which made it's made $472 million on a $9 million budget, people are disappointed. You know, I mean, that's how it all works. Um, I mean, Jaws made 50 times its budget. Mm-hmm. 41 made three times its budget. It's crazy to hear the story of Jaws. And, like, the whole the, that shark was supposed to be throughout the entire movie. And the fact that it broke ended up working, like, crazy in that movie's favor like it literally created a trope of you don't see the monster till the third act oh i mean it's that was yeah that was because of a technical issue yeah and i mean it looks looks great and it's like he went crazy over budget there are so many problems like filming like if you had like told us like just the story like told an, an executive like all these problems i'm sure they're having a conniption fit and they're like whatever they release it and it's the literally it, like it's the reason we have only marvel movies today is because it started the blockbuster it's uh it's very interesting too before we move on i just looked down and um aspiring film guy who who follows us says if he was stuck on an island with only one director's filmography he would choose spielberg so I mean, it's, so he's going to really enjoy this conversation. Every, everybody, but like that's the thing. Everybody, you know, I mean, if you want something a little bit more light, I mean, Spielberg's going to deliver it to you. I mean, he, it's not going to be Tarantino. He's not going to leave you with that warm, with that warm feeling. It's going to be Spielberg. Well, why don't we like talk about like our favorite popcorn movies? Because I think it's a perfect segue. Because as much as like I shit on him, like one of my favorite <laughs> all-time popcorn movies is Jurassic Park. Um, like I, I love dinosaurs as a kid. I I can't imagine I I saw any like I must have seen the second one in the theater or something. Um, but like his like when I say he's like a bad director, I just I don't like his dramas too much. But his genre movies, oh, I yeah. think, are incredible. Like Jaws, um, I saw it a little bit later in life, so I don't have a huge affinity for it. But I mean, it's obviously a good movie. It's a super enjoyable movie. Um, partially because of my age, like I said, I love Jurassic Park. Um. Spielberg makes amazing popcorn movies, and some of his best movies are just popcorn movies that I love. Um, like I said, it's just the dramas that kind of do yeah, for me. Well, but, uh, I mean, Adam, right? what's 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 a what's your favorite popcorn movie? Well, again, Tony, you mentioned something I'm going to uh, piggyback off of is a Robert Zemeckis movie from 1984. And it is one of my all-time favorite movies in general, just because it's fun as hell. It's Romance in the Stone. Yes, I love Romance. Man, I thought you were going to say Back to the Future for a second. I know you were going to think that, but then I was like, he's going a little bit deeper than that. So what I love about this movie is, from start to finish, it's just, it's fun from start to finish. There's no points in it. The pacing is perfect in this movie. Michael Douglas is awesome. Kathleen Turner's great. Danny DeVito's hilarious. Zach Norman is Danny DeVito's cousin. Ira is just it's unbelievable. Just I mean, it, it, it's dude, it's got everything. It's got, you know, it's got action. It's got some, like, it's got romance involved in it. You know, some heartwarming stuff. It's got some comedy in it. And like I said, from start to finish, you're engaged. Um, 
So that's a movie I can turn on. Like you're talking, like Tony was talking about, you know, that's not a movie I would turn on, you know, on a Saturday night, people are coming up. That is a movie I would turn on. If yes. Coming over and be yeah. like, if you yeah. don't enjoy this, dude, something's the matter with you. Well, you were raised incorrectly. It's the type of movie where, you know, and again, this movie played in my house growing up. And within the last couple of years, I got my wife to watch it because I was like, you like to read books? She's a, she likes to read books in this movie. Um, but that being said, it, it is like you said, it is, it reminds me a lot of like a more looser Indiana Jones in a way. Yeah. Um, kind of like, yeah. You know, I mean, but that it, it is, these are the type of movies I'm talking about. A popcorn movie is a movie, like you said, you could put on with other people. And it's not like so serious that you have to focus like 100% on the screen. You could turn away for a second and still pretty much get everything. And it, it's great. Um, Alan Silvestri, he does the music. Zemeckis, like you said, um, Diane Thomas, she writes the um, script, but it's that's a really good one. I Who like was the key lot. grip on that movie, Tony? The key grip on that movie is uh, Millennial Socks. You can catch him on his. Um, what? I'm just kidding. Go on now. What he other was the best boy? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that was, that's was definitely that? one of my favorite popcorn movies. Um, and, and it, I mean. Also, one of my favorite uh, popcorn movies, and, and it's not really considered—I I wouldn't really consider it a popcorn movie, I guess, per se, based on what we're defining it as. But anytime I turn on Clue, I don't turn it off until the movie's over. Oh yeah, Clues, Clues—it's just a classic. I mean, that—that that is just a movie. Like you know, it's hilarious, and and if you don't like that, I don't understand why you don't like it i i uh i lived when i lived in california for a little bit my buddy out there that's one of the movies he always wanted to watch was clue and it's a movie like you said it's another movie you could just put on and not take too seriously but it's brilliant everybody in that cast if you ask yourself like who performed the best in that movie maybe tim curry Eh, maybe ali brennan did hey leslie ann warren did i mean they were all just unbelievable martin mall they were unbelievable in that movie all of them tim curry they all played off each other very well and it did it did do well at the box office either it grew its fan base you know much later after the movie was released yeah so that that I got I I can't get enough of movies like that. Well, Mason Stone was just fun to me. Um, my biggest I will say my popcorn movies that I'm gonna go with I can go all day long, but mine are um I'll say like John Carpenter, like Big Trouble in Little China, oh yeah, The Thing and Escape from New York. Um, those three movies. I mean, John Carpenter writes his movies, he directs them, he does all the music for them. Um, Kurt Russell, who to me, I think Kurt Russell's about as, as, as cool of an actor, um, especially during that time frame, because you're looking at a guy who, again, he could have been a baseball player. He tried that a lot. Um, a Did you ever see the, the Battered Bastards of Baseball? Yes, that is a great documentary, which is what I wanted to say. But yes, um, but those movies generally are movies that, um, which I would you know, you could have a good time and you could put them on. Um, you know what? I love watching, well, not love, but like when I first, I saw um, Escape from New York after 9-11, so like I was a little bit older, and yeah. them, them landing on the Twin Towers is still <laughs> so weird. <laughs> I know. 
Like, there's, it's, it's a movie that I think takes place in like 2022, well, like 2020 as well. It's like it doesn't take place in like 3005. What, what I want you to, well, when you watch those movies, like that movie especially, especially the landing on the thing, you could tell. I mean, it, it, the graphics aren't the best, but that's what I think makes it. It's somewhere between B movie and greatness. That's like um, almost a movie that needs to be remade a little bit with just like just almost do the same exact thing. Don't land on the Twin Towers, but almost well, do the same the thing, exact though, thing you can't, and just give like because they tried it. They made a sequel and the sequel bombed. No, um, no, but I mean like make Escape from New York almost the same with just better special effects because I like that movie a lot too. But like that car chase scene at the end, like it's just like the moment where like ooh the, that budget really shows. Well, but that's the point. Is like that's what I'm trying to tell you. I don't think it's the movie. point. It's a good movie. But well, no, like, the point that is the point. That is the point. The point is, is that he, it's it, all of his movies, even into the '90s, they're all look like that. He, it's almost like I said, a B movie effect. Like he didn't go all the way, but that's what makes the movie original. Like his movies don't look like any other movies, and I think it, that's because of it. And to your answer, um, they were going to do a remake with Gerard Butler during his when he was blowing up, but then they canceled that. So I don't know if they are still planning to do that. But a remake, you know, the um, things like if they actually were made with Gerard Butler, like it would be terrible because like they try to mix it up, like just do the same exact movie, just with better special effects. Well, this is a good lead in then to our next topic, which is the, if we could remake a movie, what would we remake? So, Adam, what did, what did you end up picking? So, I went with Logan's Run. Okay. And, Tony, I know you've seen Logan's Run. Adam, have you seen Logan's Run? I have not, but I've heard of it. Okay. So, it's basically about another, it's, it's a futuristic movie. And in this future, people live in, it's on Earth, but they live in dome cities. And once you hit the age of 30, you go through this, basically the ceremony they call carousel. And supposedly you were like reborn. So no one lives past the age of 30. And the guy who plays the main character, Michael York, he plays Logan. And they have numbers after their names. So he's Logan 5. A friend of his is Francis 7. So... Basically, they he plays what they call a Sandman. So people who don't believe in going to Carousel and who want to not go through the ceremony, they are called runners. And the and the Sandman's job is to hunt down these runners and basically obliterate them, like disintegrate them with their with the weapons they have, because they don't want anybody, like I said, lasting past the age of thirty. And uh, not to ruin the whole movie for you, but. It's a very, very fun sci-fi thriller, and the only setback that is when it was made in the mid-70s, the technology I think they needed to make that movie wasn't quite available yet. So these dome cities were actually what they used to film in the interiors of these dome cities were actual sh- So that's what substituted <laughs> for it. And the, if you if you see the movie, you kind of see what I'm talking about when it comes to some of the special effects. But it's got a lot of great um, uh, actors in it, great cast. Peter Ustinov's in it. Um, Jenny Agater, who was just stunning at that time, uh, is in the movie. She plays Jessica Six, who who is actually a runner that Logan ends up running with as they try to find this place called Sanctuary. But um, if I had to remake that, I think the technology now would help 
would definitely help make that movie better. And thinking about how I'd cast that movie, so Mike for Michael York's character, and Michael York, for everyone, anyone who doesn't know, is he, he was Basil Exposition and Austin Powers to kind of give you a frame of reference there. Um, He's great. He was, yeah. Uh, it was kind of funny when I first saw Austin Powers. I was like, oh my God, that's Logan Five. <laughs> but um, I think casting his role would go, I think Tom Holland would be perfect. So I'm thinking of people around that age too. I think Tom Holland would be Logan. Um, Emma Mackey, who you, if you guys have seen Death in the Nile, she was in that. Oh, yeah. Uh, I would cast her as Jessica Six in Jenny Agutter's role. And Alden Ehrenreich, I would actually put as Francis Seven, who Richard Jordan played in the original, in which I thought Richard Jordan was a phenomenal actor. And it's, it's very tragic that he died when he did. Yes. Um, and as the old man that Peter Ustinov played, who they find towards the end, I can envision an older Robbie Coltrane. Okay. Robbie Coltrane. So you got to still mix in because there were some English actors and American actors in that movie as well. And I think that, that would still keep that type of mixture in there. So the technology we have now and the abilities that we could actually make that movie into something that's bigger than it was. And I think that's a be a perfect movie from um, that type of sci-fi movies. Older sci-fi movies, I think, are easier. They, they to are, remake. yeah, because of the technology we have now. But you don't want to sacrifice script either. But a lot of the sci-fi movies from the fifties, sixties, seventies, they didn't really have very strong scripts anyway. So you're really just going based off the story itself and what and the kind of basically the camera work, the cinematography in front of you, and the art, and definitely the art direction. So. Yeah. I, that's why I went with I'm on Logan's run, and I think uh, one day, actually, I do think one day it will be redone. Um, two things really quick. Number one, you're absolutely right. Um, it definitely, it reminds me a lot of, like, Tron, and then you see the new Tron, where it would look so much cool. And not that lo- the original Logan's run is bad, but it would look definitely really cool. You thought it, it, was, it was a little campy. You know, it, there's it, some it, things that were very campy, and you're like, eh, you know, it's... Um, and when I, when we were the first time when we took a road trip to California, a buddy of mine, he befriended online, um, Jerry Goldsmith, the music the guy who does the music for this movie, Twilight Zone. He does lots and lots and lots of movies. We befriended his son and we got to go to like his house. So he does the music for Logan's run. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And the music and that it, that's the incredible soundtrack to that the score to that movie. Um, and but if yeah. they ever did redo it, I kind of hope they keep that. Like, you know how Godzilla King of the Monsters kind of kept that version, that movie kept, like, the original, parts of the original song from the original, you know, 1950s Godzilla. That's yeah. what I would hope they would do with Logan's run, too. Oh, that makes sense. What did, what did you pick, my co-host? What did you pick for your movie? Ring? All right. The movie I picked, I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Um, it came out in the 40s. Uh, and it's called Casablanca. Ooh, I, I, let me look at my thing. I think I've heard of it. Casablanca. <laughs> Casablanca. Yeah. It's a it's a foreign city somewhere in Africa. And uh, so the the only reason not the only reason the reason I picked Casablanca is because when I watch it, even though it's like a great love story, uh, like the second act, and like when Ilsa comes in, I, I kind of like tune out. To me, 
I have so much fun with just the Nazi subplot and just like Rick Blaine being a badass, just like living in the city and ruling the city that like I just want to remake Casablanca and just like tone down the love story and like tone up the thriller aspect of it. <laughs> That'd be cool. Right. So like here's here's my cast. Um as so the great Peter Lorre who played Ugarte in it. Um to me, the modern-day Peter Lorre is like Christoph Waltz, so I think he'll be perfect for it. Even though it's a movie with Nazis, we're not casting Christoph Waltz as a Nazi. Um, <laughs> as Sam, I'm casting Jamie Foxx, mainly because he's just a good actor who I know can play the piano. <laughs> um, as uh, So Captain Renault, I'm changing a little bit. He... Um, he was the guy who was the chief of police in Casablanca, like as a liaison for the Nazis throughout the town. And I'm uh, changing that to Riz Ahmed because he seems like, or at least could believably be cast as like the actual chief of police in Casablanca. Okay. Um, as Victor Laszlo, um, the husband of Ilsa, to me, I think this, this is like the part where I think it can go for like any young white guy. Um, I was looking at top, the cast of Top Gun Maverick and just trying to cast a person. And my first thought is, um, oh my God, I freaking forgot his name. But he's in Everybody Wants Some, Glenn Powell. Oh yeah, Glenn Powell. But then I was like, then it made me think of Everybody Wants Some. And it's like my favorite young actor who was his co-star, which is uh, Wyatt Russell. So I was like, shoot, let's just get Wyatt Russell there because I love him. <laughs> Tony, who's White Russell's dad? Have you ever heard of him? Uh, I think he's in some John Carpenter movies. And then, okay, for the main two, for Rick Blaine and Elsa. So for Elsa, she's kind of a little bit young, but she's a great actress. Um, and, you know, it's a movie about foreigners, so let's get some more accents in this movie. I'm casting Ana de Armas. Oh, perfect. And then for uh, Rick Blaine, because you need to cast someone to play that great. Humphrey classic Humphrey Bogart role. You just need the coolest motherfucker around who can act. <laughs> and so I'm casting Brad Pitt. Oh, I bet you're gonna say Patrick Swayze if he was alive. Damn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't we're gonna I'm gonna exhume the corpse of Patrick Swayze. I'm gonna um just tie him up on strings. Just, oh, all right, all right, all right. We'll we'll just find stock footage of him from Roadhouse and there that we go. used and stock we'll footage of Roadhouse for Casablanca remake. Yeah. I like <laughs> I like that though. That's a good that would be a good remake. Brad Pitt would do a good job. And honestly, I bet you I can get that movie made. Just like, <laughs> hey, I got some IP for you. <laughs> Casablanca. Well, it's going to be tough to get the actress when you tell her that you're taking a role away of the love story. What's she going to do in the movie? I'm sure she will do just... I mean, what did she do in that Bond movie? She was in for a scene and friggin' left. That's true. That's true. We just need to get her in the movie. I, get I will your pay point. her lots of money. <laughs> say, She'll hey, do Steve. what Ingrid Bergman did, is get in the plane and leave. Well, the movie I have picked, um, I would remake a movie from 1969... Uh, Midnight Cowboy. Um, I would switch the movie to just call it Midnight. And I would... Um, has any of you two seen this movie? Are you oh, going to yeah. cast yourself in the John Voight role just so you can have sex with older ladies on film? You know what? My wife's listening. No, I'm just kidding. No, no, I won't do that. Um, but um, it would be cool if it 
was the late 60s. But this is one of my favorite movies. Um, I enjoy this movie a lot. I think it has an excellent, excellent point, which the point is pretty much you see it all the time. People think that they could just move anywhere and be anywhere and just kind of like their personality can kind of just take them places. And that's not really the way the world works. And as you could see kind of how the world is now, it's actually a lot worse than that. So in the movie, pretty much John Voight, he lives in Texas. And he's just going to go to New York and because he's a cowboy and everybody's going to love him. And he shows up to New York and nobody loves him at all. And then he befriends Dustin Hoffman, who to me um, earlier, and I know we're going to, you're, you're going to disagree with me a lot, but I think Dustin Hoffman is an equal category of Al Pacino and um, Jack Nicholson. I just think he flies under the radar. Why would I disagree with you? That's a very obvious take. I agree with you as well. Well, because a lot of people, if you watch, like watch, after we're done tonight, I'll post, what's the best Dustin Hoffman movie off the top of your head? Oh, jeez. I'll tell you what one of the best Dustin Hoffman movies off the top of my head I've thought of. It's actually Little Fockers. It's it's another underrated 70s movie by two big actors. It's Marathon Man? Which one? What are you picking? Scarecrow. Oh, Scarecrow. Yes, him and Gene Hackman. Yes. I mean, no, that's him and Pacino's. That's him and Pacino. I'm sorry. No, Marathon Man. Marathon Schlesinger, Man. Schlesinger to Marathon Man. The same guy yes. to Midnight Cowboy. Yes. Um, yes Marathon yes. Man. Marathon Man's great. That's a great movie. Yeah, and that's one of Oli- I mean, Olivia was. Now, I mean, just now, sinister. Now, that, but... that movie could also equally, I think, could be coolly remade. Um, and both of those movies, actually, I like um, your pick earlier of Brad Pitt. I'm not saying Brad Pitt. Um, it, you're either going to have to go somebody younger or you're going to have to go somebody older, like Paul Dano playing the Dustin Hoffman part. And then you're going to have to get somebody. I'm trying to think of who could, who could, Michael it's, Shannon. Maybe it's very on brand for you to cast Paul Dano in your fake movie. Paul Dano will always be mentioned at least once in this podcast. He needs you know, to be you know mentioned. what you can do? Why don't you reunite, re, uh, reunite Leo and Brad Pitt? Perfect. This is perfect. I like it. Um, Honestly, uh, you I'm could... going to be curious if, if I can get this movie rated X again and still be nominated for Best Picture like the original. You know what? I think that so like so one thing about Midnight Cowboy is that it's like it's very of its time. Oh, and no. what I think it's so good. So if you're gonna modernize this movie for kind of like that, um, that like uh, imposter fire fraud symptom that like we have going on in our society, yeah, yes. you, you got to go younger. You got to go like Miles Teller and the, yeah. um, honestly, what about like Miles Teller and Wyatt Russell? Wyatt Russell and the John Voight role. The, the most and, important and Miles thing Teller about this movie, Hoffman is- role. The most important thing about this movie is going to be the way it, it looks on film to me. Um, it can't look like that crisp, um, that crisp Netflix look. It needs to look. You, I want to shoot it and I want to shoot it in old cameras. That's that's my dream is to shoot it in original film like they used to, but with the actors of today with the new story, but shot like so it looks classic on the screen. So we'll see. We'll see if any of these three get remade. <laughs> Aren't you writing a movie? I'll tell you what, though, Adam. If Casablanca, if you ever remake Casablanca, no one will ever forgive you for it. <laughs> I know that, that's the thing. Like, 
but you know what? Like, there's so many movies that like, get remade that shouldn't have got. Literally, West Side Story just got. That's remade. what I was just gonna say. West Side Story. I mean, if that's pretty, that's pretty close to dancing the line of of why are we remade? You know. So I'm, yeah. I'm telling you, it's it's like gonna happen within our lifetimes. Like, I'm not advocating for like a straight remake of Casablanca. Like I said, I want to do it a little twist, but a hundred percent. Within the next ten years, Warner Brothers is going to remake Casablanca, just just because they want the IP. I'm not like advocating it per se. I think I would love for everyone to just make new and original movies, but you know what's going to happen. Well, that's the thing. I think all three of our picks are actually all movies that are older movies that could definitely be remade. Like we're not picking here, like uh, Back to the Future or something, something that doesn't Jaws. You know, we're picking movies that could definitely be shown in a different light, which I think is good. But it, it is, I think that's Adam's original point of like, I think that's good to like movies that just um, had bad special effects for yeah. their time, yeah. like remade it with modern special effects. Um, it's definitely a good point. Like, I feel like there should be like a reason to modernize it. I think Midnight Cowboy in the sense of like this Instagram era of like, you know, what you see what you put out to the world isn't real life, I think could be like a super interesting angle. Um, so like you're going to have to get really grimy because the original movie got really grimy, but you're going to have to do it in a different way that hasn't been done before, which would be tough, <laughs> but it could still be done. All right. So Midnight Cowboy didn't take place, took place a little bit after the fifties, but it's an old movie. We're talking some old movies about 1950s. That's the best segue I got. Not very good. <laughs> but um, we're talking about, we're going to pick a movie from the 1950s uh, to spotlight. So, Adam, gee, what, what 1950s movie are you picking? What three movies did I pick? Okay. Um, <laughs> I know. Give me your top 20. <laughs> the first one I'm going to go with on here is Paths of Glory. Oh. And it's made by my absolute all-time favorite director, Stanley Kubrick. Nice. It is one of it is one of his earlier movies. Um, and he was kind of on the forefront of using uh, track shots, you know, continuous shots like that before anyone else was really doing that. And if you watch, you know, the first 10 minutes, that, about 10, 20 minutes of that movie, you'll see Kirk Douglas walking through that trench. That's all one shot. You know, that was very pre, you know, 1917 that movie took it to a, a whole new level but it was something like that was first done in uh back in the 50s with uh paths of glory and like any kubrick movie the the camera work and the uh the production design is just it's so meticulous it's unbelievable um george mccready that movie is fantastic adolf manjou who was in uh a lot of many silent movies i liked and then also, he's been in several movies, but he was great in that movie. Kirk Douglas, even though he's playing a person who's supposed to be French with an American accent, <laughs> he's phenomenal in it. And uh, actually, at the end of that movie, too, uh, the girl who sings at the end of that movie to the French soldiers turned out to end up being Stanley Kubrick's wife. That's oh. how they met that set. I did not know that. Yeah. And to me, that's one of the quintessential World War One movies. And... If you ever watch between, you know, World War One movies and World War II movies are so different. World War II movies are very heroic type movies and a lot of, you know, a lot of heroism they, they basically focus on. World War One movies 
will depress the living bejesus out of you. <laughs> they are so anti-war films, and this one is no exception. And they're dark. Um, there's I can go over a ton of World War One movies that are just depressing. Um, this one isn't depressing. Well, what about Wonder Woman? That was a pretty uplifting World War One movie. <laughs> if you consider that a World War One, but but um. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of World War One movies out there. If you look them up, I mean, The Trench, um, My Boy Jack, uh, Farewell to Arms, um, All Quiet on the Western Front. You know, th- Dan those Mendes, movies... new one isn't really very 1917. That one, yeah, 1917. Well, 1917 wasn't nearly as bad. Not all of them are like that, but like it's those movies all have endings that like kill almost pretty much the like just kill off the main character just and just end abruptly and just be as you leave you leave the theater or wherever you're watching it pretty much as depressed as possible <laughs> but they're good movies and definitely one of my favorite probably my favorite World War one film um also I went with um this is a more of a fun one uh Forbidden Planet Oh, yes. And it was a precursor, you know, to Star Trek and things like that, starring a serious and young Leslie Nielsen and uh, Walter Pidgeon in that. And then also I chose um, an Orson Welles movie that no one really ever talks about, and that's Mr. Arcaden. Oh, nice. And that movie, he really brings in different uh, camera techniques. Because Greg Tolan was his cameraman who taught him pretty much all the tricks he knew. But in this movie, you see a lot of, like, lower what they call Dutch camera angles where you see, you know, a camera right below the person looking almost straight up at them to make them look more menacing. And Orson Welles stars in it, and he is absolutely phenomenal, as always. And the movie's not terribly long movie, so it's not something that's going to invest a long period of your evening with. But it's a good, it's kind of a crime, and not really a crime drama, but it's more of a drama thriller, and there's obviously romance involved, but the way it's filmed is very unique and it was very much and Orson Welles himself when it comes to camera work and things like that was very ahead of his time. And this movie is definitely no exception. So those are the three movies I went with. And to piggyback off of what you did, um, the movie I picked was um, Orson Welles follow up to Mr. Arcadian. Um, I picked touch of evil. Awesome. Um, I like touch of evil a lot. Um, I think Orson Welles, you know, I think everything, I like Orson Welles a lot. Um, the movie Janet Lee, um, who's Janet Lee's daughter? Um, my co-host. You there? Uh, I freaking muted myself again. And I also uh, had a great zinger for you two seconds ago. <laughs> it is and- it's Jamie Lee Curtis. You got it. Good job. Good job. Yes, but Charlton Heston, um, playing a Mexican. Yes, as, as pointed is, out in Get Shorty. One, that is the one. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, but you know, have have said things about that. But the movie itself is really it 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 shows a lot of. Um, to me, it's classic film noir. Um, one of my favorite types of movies. Um, it's the type of movie where you definitely get involved in the story, you know, and I like, I like, um, Orson Welles. And like I said, it's a good one. And how, I mean, how awesome in touch of evil is 
or how I mean, how sultry looking is like Marlene? Oh, oh, she's she, Mar- <laughs> she is. I like actually looking, watching movies, older movies, and 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 you could see actresses are are showcased a lot different than newer movies, and I, I definitely. Um, Marlene Dietrich is no exception in this movie. She does a really, really good job, and um, she plays um, what's the name? She plays off the top of my head. What's her name in the movie? Oh, it's T- Tana is her name in the movie. She is again. She's really good. Um, but yeah, Touch of Evil was my pick. Um, but again, shout out to you and Forbidden Planet. That was a really good pick. Um, I've watched a lot of sci-fi movies from the 50s. There's a lot of good sci-fi movies from the 50s. Um, there's one if you've never seen before. It's called Fiend Without a Face. It's a really pretty cool sci-fi movie. But that's that's what I got. What do you got, Millennial? All right. I am going to bring some lightness to this conversation. <laughs> and I am going to talk about early Cindy Lumet in 1957's 12 Angry Men. Nice. Great wow. choice. I mean, it's it's a pretty obvious choice of like it's obviously a great movie from the '50s. It's got it's been remade a bajillion times, but there's nothing quite like the original. And one of the things that I really love about this movie is just how, and I think also part of the reason that the remakes haven't been uh, as good is just Sidney Lumet's camera work throughout it, his ability to make you engage and find it like really bring you into the story when it's literally just 12 people in a single room and i think um uh, who's the main guy seven Uh, i had it pulled up on imdb Uh, he goes to take a piss at one point henry fonda plays eight um during number eight but I mean, for the most part, it's just it's filmed in a single room because it was based, I think, on a or maybe they did a play afterwards, but whatever. It's, it's basically it's a play, but to film it so cinematically and the way the camera just moves throughout it all and to make those conversations so much more interesting and engaging than they actually are. Uh, I just I find it wonderful. Um, one, of my, one of my favorite actors in, is in this movie. Um, I really enjoy Jack Warden. He plays juror number Jack seven. Jack awesome. The wisecracking salesman and baseball fanatic. Um, really, I like his role in that movie a lot. All right. Ed, Ed Begley Jr.'s dad is in this yes. movie. Uh, yes. Do you know what his dad's name is? Uh, I think it's Ed John. <laughs> is it Henry Fonda? It's uh, L.E. Cobb. Okay. L- L- Lee J. Cobb. Lee J. Cobb. I fucked that one up. Um, no, I mean, Henry Fonda, yeah, he plays juror number eight. Um, you know, essentially, at the very beginning, you know, they need to decide guilt or innocence of this young kid. Initially, everyone decides guilty except for him. And the movie is him slowly convincing everyone else to uh, to find the kid innocent. And uh, to put my lawyer hat on, it's incredibly frustrating because, I mean, he literally, at one point, like the murder weapons is a knife and he's like, Oh yeah, I just have a knife here in the deliberations. And uh, I bought it off the street and Hey, isn't that a coincidence? I was like, well, maybe don't bring in evidence into your jury deliberations. Um, Not really supposed to have a little mini trial in jury deliberations. The whole point of it is for jurors to discuss the evidence presented to you. 
but regardless, it's a it's really enjoyable. It's a very easy watch. Um, and definitely don't watch any of the other remakes. Just watch uh, the Sydney Lumet version. Yeah, that's good. Definitely. Excellent pick. And uh, so a guy who tends to write about movies and write uh, his novels in the 1950s, that turns out a lot of people look to take his books and short stories and make them into movies, is uh, Stephen King. As I mentioned at the top of the show, he's the Firestarter remake. Uh, just recently came out. So we're going to discuss our favorite Stephen King movie adaptations. Adam G., what what are your 10 favorite Stephen King movie adaptations? My 10 favorite? <laughs> well, I'll give you my favorites. How about okay, that? Okay. So, I mean, and these are pretty run-of-the-mill, um, but my favorite Stephen King adaptation ever is it's Stand By Me. And... That movie is, I think, probably. It, it, I'm just gonna say it is. It's it's probably the best coming of age movie ever made. I will agree. And that's something you'll never forget when you're young. When you're older, it's always a good watch. Um, it's very. I mean, Rob Reiner directed it and did a great job handling a such a young cast in that movie. And uh, I mean, seriously, and, and it's not a scary movie, but. When you see Ray Brower's body, that's one of the freakiest things ever. When you're a kid, never you, you're, you're talking about. I you mean, never forget that. No. The ability to cast, you know, Will Wheaton, River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, and Jerry O'Connell, all of whom were varying levels of fame. His, mm-hmm. I mean, just four like great actors. I mean, just incredible casting, and all gave incredible performances in that movie. Yes, and I, and I think and if if. Uh, River Phoenix didn't die his, you know, as young as he did. He had been one of our great actors as well. Yeah. Um, and then the other one I, I picked was The Shining. And that's because it's for a completely different reason, though. Now, obviously, Stanley Kubrick's my favorite director. So that's a big reason why I picked it. But he deviated a lot from the book itself. Hold, and it hold kinda... on a second. Before you go any further, did you pick the ABC version or is this the Stanley Kubrick version? This is the Stanley Kubrick version. <laughs> the ABC version doesn't exist. Okay. It's a figment of your imagination. It's a figment of everyone's imagination. If you see it on the line, it's fake news. So, By the way, Stephen King would disagree with you, but I mean, go I ahead. I, I don't know why, though. I have That's the biggest thing I've never understood why. But continue now. But um, so he deviated from The Shining quite a bit. But I think what he did, like, like basically, when it was adapted to the screen, I think the screenplay was much better than the actual book itself. And you couldn't have made a freakier psychological thriller than he did in that movie. Okay, and right. I mean, it's it's not like you know, there's a lot of when people think of Stephen King movies, um, you know, they think of you know, Carrie. Uh, Maximum Overdrive, which is awesome too, and you know movies of that nature. But like, The Shining is you know, it's a Stephen King based novel, but the adaptation was was the adapt- adaptation I have to say was great. And uh, so I kinda... think that like a- anybody who doesn't like that movie, I mean, 
I don't understand. Like, you know, they, they find it boring or something of that nature. They're not very much into psychological frozen. They're more into the into the slasher, you know, type. I first saw The Shining when I was in college, and we had my college dorm room was like most dorm rooms, super small. It had two beds on each side and like this very very little tiny walkway, you know, to get to the beds. And at the end of the beds was uh, our fridge, and our TV was on top of the fridge. So just like on a random Friday night, we had like 10 people just shoved into our tiny dorm room, you know, just got the popcorn flowing. And I first saw that movie and turn off the lights. And it's uh, it's a great movie for that. It's like, I'm not super big into scary movies, as Tony won't knows, but uh, The Shining, is, it's, it's not even really that scary, especially by today's standards. No, it's, it's, it's psychologically messes you up more is. than like freaks you out, you know, it's like. That, that's what I love about that movie. My, my, my first experience was, I'll never forget, I think I was like eight or nine, and I was going to try to watch it by myself. And I'll never forget, my mom went to bed, and my dad was working midnights, and I couldn't make it through the credits. This scared me too much. The loud orchestra, the flowing through the mountains. I didn't really understand what I was getting myself into, and for some reason, that just spooked me enough to stop watching it. Of course, I watched it a couple of years later, and I've watched it a lot. I've, God, I've watched... the art direction of that movie is just incredible, and the back some to stuff Jack Nicholson. And I guess this is this will solidify the earlier point of what we were talking about in the debate. And I believe that I've come around to believe that you're right about um, it being better than. Um, I definitely think Jack Nicholson is better than Pacino. When you think about when you think about this movie so much, um, definitely Jack Nicholson, I think, takes Pacino down, um, especially after watching The Shining. Yeah, Al Pacino's a fucking bum. Fuck. That <laughs> <man>. <laughs> yeah, you know, out of a hundred actors, Pacino's like number five, and you know, Jack Nicholson's one. You know what a bum. Uh, Adam, though, you were talking a little bit about uh, a director changing the ending. Um, and I'm going to pick my, I'm, I'm picking actually a trio of Stephen King adaptations, but they're all directed by Frank Darabont and Frank Darabont notoriously helped, uh, work with Stephen King and like getting his approval to change the endings of at least Shawshank and the mist. Um, the third one he did was the green mile. Um, so I wonder if Kubrick had just gone up to Spielberg and just said, Hey, here's what I want to do. Spielberg would have been more not Spielberg, fuck Stephen King. <laughs> Stephen King would have been more. Spielberg. Hey, I mean, <laughs> clearly Kubrick and, and Spielberg King were the same person. Spielberg and Stephen King, the same person. I'm pretty sure they are. You ever seen pictures of both those dudes? It's like, they're like <laughs> yeah. alter ego. One's the alter ego of the other. There you go, like Andy Kaufman, just slubby, you know. bearded dudes. <laughs> anyway, uh, Stephen King. Um, I mean, the Shawshank Redemption. It's one of my all-time favorite movies, like Tony's dad showing him Pulp Fiction at a young age. Yeah. My cousin showed me The Shawshank Redemption when I was probably like eight or nine, which has got a lot of violent rape scenes in it, so not <laughs> definitely not cool. Um, so the prison that they shot the shot the baby the prison that they shot the Shawshank Redemption in is in uh, Mansfield, Ohio, and in they every year these like group of people they run like a 5k throughout the prison and they try to get at least one of the actors just like a minor actor 
um, to come and talk about it. And you got to actually like tour the prison and see where like all the stuff was shot. And uh, if I can interject real quick, Adam, with that, um, I, I was actually stood up in my friend's wedding in Mansfield, Ohio. Oh, awesome. And I went to that reformatory. And I also went to a couple different places around that area where they did some filming. Like the end, like the interior prison shots weren't done where there were where the reformatory is. It was like this different uh, factory they used. Yeah, and, I was, gonna uh, say, yeah, I was uh, a couple different ones. But was it, gonna... it was a really neat place. And it really is. It's a really neat place to visit and like, you know, have tours and stuff. But so in like January all... or February of 2020, my wife and I like signed up to do a 5K. Uh, and the 5k took place in august of 2020 so we paid money we paid our dues to do this 5k and then the world went to shit a couple months later uh, so we, did, we did like this virtual 5k and like they sent us our merch and stuff <laughs> that was already prepaid for so like i couldn't even get my money back oh, my so we were, we were gonna do a 5k in mansfield around the prison and never did it and the, the q a was with um do you remember the scene at towards the very end where uh spoil it's gonna be kind of a spoiler to anyone who hasn't seen the fucking Shawshank Redemption? But uh Andy Dufresne is talking to a bank manager to pull money from one of his fake yes. accounts, and there's a woman that comes over and gives him his check. Uh-huh. Um, there was an interview with her, oh. and it was an interview with um Andy Dufresne's the actress who played his wife and her lover that gets shot in the beginning. It was uh, virtual interviews with them, but uh, anyway, we're going to get a sponsored, paid for field trip to this place one day. That, that would be nice, <laughs> so I can finally get do my five k. Um, but I mean, the Shawshank—it's—it's it's just one of those movies where how do you not hate That's on the great. Shawshank Redemption? And all no, the you changes- really can't. You really can't. It's—I mean, it's—it's it's one of the most satisfying movie endings of all time. It is. It's a great movie. But you know what's what's weird? So. The whole novella and the whole theme of the movie is all about hope. So the movie was supposed to end with Morgan Freeman's character, Red, just that shot of him driving away in a bus saying, I hope I see my friend again, which I actually think would have been a more perfect ending considering what the theme of the movie is. And the movie studio was like, ah, they got to meet. So yeah. they had that tacked on meeting on the beach, uh, which which is fine. But um but the reason why I, I like that ending, though, the way they did it was because of what you saw, what they went through, with, especially with the warden and everything. And it was kind of like both of those guys at the end, by them meeting at the beach and him helping Andy with whatever business he was opening there, they beat the warden. And, and yeah. you know, yeah, like, I mean, that was kind of you know, satisfying. It, it, it's satisfying. That's what it is. It's 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 if you do it the first way, it's it's more it leads it to the imagination. The way it happened, it's more like a little bit wraps it up a little bit, but in a positive way. Um, no, don't get me wrong. I love you know as a Kubrick person, I love ambiguous endings. I was just bitching about Spielberg and his all bow tied endings. Oh yeah, but oh, this no, particular right. movie, I don't think yeah. needed an ambiguous ending. Of well, what no, happened. because generally it is kind of also ambiguous because they just kind of stare at each other and it fades to black. They don't like if they had him going out to dinner and then talking about what happened in the prison. That might have been yeah. the movie. It kind yeah. of just like they stare at each other and then it ends. And it's a great pullback shot of Pacific too at the end, yes. you know, yes. since the ending oh, they mentioned it. Well, it's just, because the whole it's movie great. is the whole movie is in the pitch black dark. 
yeah the last shot is in like the most beautiful place you could ever see i definitely agree but that's also a movie where so like uh because i love the shawshank redemption so much like i read the novella i had it in this like booklet with um the body which was the basis of stand by me yeah and, and i love all the changes that frank darabont made to emphasize these themes so like the whole thing is like brooks character doesn't exist at all in the novella but I think it's just an imperfect encapsulation of the themes of what the movie represents. Now mm-hmm. it makes it like an extra 45 minutes. So if you don't like long movies, that'll frustrate you. But like there's like multiple wardens. Um, uh-huh. At one point, Andy Dufresne has a, um, a bunk mate and that part of the bunk mate like telegraphs the reveal of how he, I guess we can say it, we've kind of spoiled it already, how he escapes from Shawshank. Yes. Um, there's like a point where the roommate was talking about like, it was very drafty in the room, very drafty and it's like, oh well it was drafty because he was fucking digging a whole giant hole <laughs> um, but on, on the other end of the spectrum of, so that's like straightforward Stephen King um, and thereupon ended up doing horror uh, Stephen King with The Mist uh, actually last week Tony you were talking about Thomas Jane yes. um, Mist stars like Thomas Jane I feel like is kind of this underrated actor who like definitely can star and carry projects. Um, and, you know, the mist does that thing there, what Jaws does, where you don't, you spend a lot of time not really seeing the monsters. Um, and like the monsters are ourselves, that Marsha Gay Harden character, um, that the wackadoodle um, religious zealot turning people um, against uh, like Andre Brower and Thomas Jane. Um, it's just like a really like, you know, the classic trope in these in horror movies is just talking about like what it's not the mon- like talking about human nature and how these extreme event extreme events will like affect how we react with each other. And uh, I also love me a good bleak ending. And the change that Darebont made to the mist is super fucking bleak. Oh, and bleak. Uh, it's, it's funny it, you, you brought that one up too because as satisfying and great as the Shawshank Redemption ending is. This is a total 180 and like the most emotionally depressing right, ending you could. It is. Like I literally love, you know, like I knew the ending was bleak, but when it happened anyway, I still let out an audible gasp. Of like, oh, oh yeah, it's oh, uh, yeah. it's really good. It definitely has shades of like a quiet place, and um, oh, yeah. it definitely has like you can definitely tell the Stephen Kingness of it, of like these people hanging out in a small like main village, and something happens, and there's monsters. Um, it's definitely a little bit underrated, Stephen King, especially considering it's not like The Shining or Carrie or anything. Um, but I think Darabont's adaptations of uh, Stephen King are really good. Yeah, I mean, I, I like it all. Too. For sure. Very, very good. Um, I picked I picked two movies, and I went on two opposite spectrums. I went uh, Academy Award-winning Stephen King adaptation which I'm going to start with is probably, if it's not Stand By Me, this is probably my favorite. And Kathy Bates in Misery, I think, is one of the best performances. Yeah, I mean, talking about Darabont and King, Rob Reiner and Stephen King. That's, that's a, what I was, it's a, a, you know. A duo of really good movies. I mean, and again, two different, and again, like you said, Darabont, Rob Reiner, two completely different movies. Um, one is, you know, a, a, a you know stand by me is like a coming of age story and then misery is pretty much a psych i wouldn't i wouldn't say it's really horror it's more again like the shining 
Listen, if, if I can handle misery, you can handle misery for anyone who's <laughs> it's it you're right. And it is there definitely is some moments like of like a little bit of I mean the whole um breaking the foot scene is just it's hard to watch. Oh but yeah. uh it, you're right, it is a lot of psychological and um and I just love James I love James Kahn in the movie too. Um it's very uh Richard Farnsworth's in the movie, he does a really good job. It's really I like it because it's intimate. I watched this movie's been on Showtime a lot in the last year. And even like on the roughest day I've had, I've turned to my wife and I said, like, being in this house, would it really have been that bad? And she's like, well, you're trapped there. And I go, well, I guess it is kind of bad. But I mean, he just got to lay there and she brought him the food. But she was crazy. That was the problem of it. Um, That being said, I enjoyed Rob Reiner, what he did with that movie. It was great. But it also holds up, like, considering what fandom is nowadays. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, it sure does. That, that statement of fandom, I mean, you, you could have you could have made Misery today, don't remake it, but, like, if Misery had come out today and made that same point about fandom, I mean, holds up remarkably well. And I am going to, I tie, I'm tying this back into popcorn movies. Um, what is Stephen King's alter writing name that he uses stefan king uh richard bachman he writes quite a lot of movies under the pseudonym richard bachman he wrote arnold schwarzenegger's the running man um that is one of my another one of my favorites by him um again it is a futuristic movie um as popcorn movies go it's really really good um that's the thing about stephen king just to kind of wrap it up is he does a lot um i really I mean, talk about it. a movie that could be remade i mean that's a good movie but some of the the running man well the running well that's it too uh people like the running man for its cheesiness and stupidness just like escape from new york but if you could do it properly it would be it would be good you ever see thinner no, i've seen thinner yeah, I mean, you see the new show. Uh, did you ever watch Castle Rock? No, I didn't watch Castle Rock. Castle Rock. That's a really... show I did want to watch, though. When the, the, first season was, the first season was really, really good. Um, but honestly, is off the top of your head, is there a bad Stephen King remake that you just don't like? Um, adaptation? Off the top of my head, not that I don't like. Yeah. I mean, they're mostly, the majority of them are all tolerable, tolerable to a sense of being not terrible. No, there are, I guarantee you there are some not good oh, ones. Oh, there are. Just, uh... I could start naming them right now. I'm trying to be positive. Um, you know, a lot of those made-for-TV ABC ones, like the Langoliers. Um... Yeah, Langoliers wasn't that great. Um, the Frighteners, I, I didn't really like the Frighteners all that much. You mean the Tommyknockers? No, it was, didn't he direct Frighteners too? Or uh... no, that's Peter Jackson, the one with Michael J. Fox. No, uh, he um, Stephen King. I mean, that's the thing is that again, a lot of the newer ones, the It remake was really good. That was a, a speaking of remakes, I think that was a, a excellent remake. I didn't see it, but I heard not so good things, and especially from fans of it, uh, the Dark Tower. Oh, that was that was bad. <laughs> Dark Tower was was it had every it had good actors. It just didn't it didn't pull it it didn't pull it off. 
Um, oh, the stand. I, I wasn't really a big fan of the stand. The stand, the yeah. I mean, the stand, and they just remade that recently with uh, Alexander Skarsgård. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 it's, 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 it's. The remake was a lot. But it's, it's boring. It's long. But speaking of this, let's let's end on this note. What is a recent top uh, classic within the last couple of years that you would consider a classic? What do you got there, Adam? Um, I think, well, here's what I did with this. What I think was going to be considered a classic in the next yeah. handful of years by people will be, um, I went with Knives Out. Okay, yeah. Because that, and, and, and like Clue, it's kind of like that murder mystery, kind of some, you know, kind of love a comedy too, although it's not a complete comedy. But um, I think of that type of movie is an easy watch. It's got, even though you figure out what obviously what happens at the end, it's got a lot of replay value to it too. And there are some things in the movie that you catch the second time around that you didn't catch the first time around. And uh, Don Johnson and uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and Michael Shannon are just killers in that movie, man. They're awesome. And I think that movie itself, you know, 10 years down the road will be in, you know, syndication and be on TV all the time. Much like, you know, the movies we've seen, like and things like that. Um, personally, like the last five years, like to me, um, I think a serious movie that's going to be, that's going to, that should, that should be a classic, but I don't think it's going to ever be considered one is Phantom Thread. Oh, that's a good movie. It's a great. He cut out. Oh no! Did we lose Adam right at the very <laughs> he, end? He lost we him. had him for such a good stretch of time. All right. Had While he's gone, him. let me talk shit about Phantom Thread. <laughs> I do. See, but the thing about Phantom Thread is, is it's again, it's an acting. It's you know, there you. Like you're not getting rid of me that easily. <laughs> no, but I think the, the, the what I was saying about um, Phantom Thread was the pacing of that film. You have to be able to appreciate something like that and what goes on during it and the, and the detail that goes into every single scene. But if you watch that movie all the way through, it's, it's a pretty incredible, like, um, tale of, you know, of love and, like, and mental codependence and stuff like emotional codependence. Like, to me, that, that's, that's the type of movie I find, like, there'll be a classic, but I don't think anyone else ever will. But well, th- so that's one you would consider. That's, that's what I would consider. That's within the last five years. Yeah. Okay. That's good. What do you got there, millennial? All right. So, uh, I, I actually every year I like rank my top ten favorite movies of the year, and I was looking at all my lists throughout the past five years, and there's no movies that like I will really rate like a holy shit that movie was awesome. Like to be right to the level of an all-time classic. I think my favorite movie of the past five years is uh, Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And even still, like, I would, I don't know if I put it at the same level as like Pulp Fiction or Inglorious Bastards. Um, that to me rises to the level of classic. Uh, so I look back on my list. To me, the last truly classic film. The last, to me, like, holy shit film was uh, 2017's Get Out. Um, So it's a little bit past five years. I think that movie is fucking... That's kind of funny. I was thinking about that one, too. 
Okay. And I, th- I think it was, that was one of the movies at the time where everyone knew this movie is really fucking good. Um, I think it's only gotten better with age. I mean, especially considering we all had to live through the Trump presidency. Um, but even still, it just like it, it makes fun of white liberals and that shit's still true now. Um, and it's so inventive. It works so well upon rewatch, even like if you know, like the first time, I think I mentioned this on the podcast before, like when you first watch that movie, you're like, where the fuck is this going? What is going on? And even on rewatch where you like, you actually know where it's going, it, it still holds up. And I think it's, it's just absolutely brilliant. That That's, I love Get Out. Get Out's a great, great movie. Um, definitely going to be considered a classic. I think 50 years, 40 years, it's going to be like, they look at the exorcist. Well, especially as if Jordan Peele keeps being as successful as he is and making movies like that, they're going to be like, "Hey, this is um, this was pretty exciting." But also, not only that, like we're seeing this trend of like black horror rise. Like recently, we saw a Candyman remake, too, and um, I, I, right, like not only is Jordan Peele making movies and he's got a new one coming out this year, I do think if we have this mini trend continue, like I think it will, especially if. Jordan Peele's movies keep making money, then like we can definitely look back at the start of it, like oh, it all started with this guy who was in like one of the greatest sketch comedy shows of all time, makes this horror movie just out of nowhere, and it's amazing. I think you you picked an excellent pick. Um, my pick, um, I a couple things. I'm disappointed that the actor in this movie wasn't nominated for a best actor role. Um, is that Kurt Russell? Uh, it should have been Kurt Russell. If we were talking 1980s movies, it would have been Kurt Russell every year. Is it but Fast Eight? You're gonna guess this movie because you should have. You should have. You should have picked this movie. I'm shocked that you didn't. I was. I was. I was worried you might pick it. Um, I am going with Uncut Gems. I think Uncut. Ooh, that's a good one. I think Uncut Gems is pretty close to that 70s feeling that you get when you watch those movies. Um, there's a pacing to it. There's a feeling to it. Um, the ending is the direct opposite of the bow tie wedding, the bow tie ending, which is my favorite. I don't like the nice ending. I want, I want, you were so close to getting it and you didn't get it. That's what I want. And that's what this movie is. Um, and Sandler, I think he, you said earlier about a movies and like, I think he, he nails the part. And especially when you look at everything else Sandler's ever did, and then you look at him in this movie, and he's as vulnerable as vulnerable can be, and he plays it to a play that I, I right now I don't have it in front of me, but I don't see how he was nominated for a, a best actor. I mean, I've heard reasons of why he, he won the the um, Independent Spirit Awards for best actor. Yeah, he um, won something for that movie. It was one of those. It's, it's just part of the part of the things with the Academy Awards is politics. Yeah, that's and what it, I, I mean. think it's just like it was, stop watching it. Yeah, but it was, like, but it was like, definitely like one of those movies that I think was a little bit too small. It didn't it came out a little bit too late, and it's also it's definitely not. A quote-unquote Academy movie, right? It doesn't it feel. That's see, right now it is an Academy movie. Taxi Driver, uh, Scarface. I mean, you go through every movie. It this is exactly that same type of movie. It's what not the new kind of Academy movie like Parasite. You know what I'm saying? But these were the movies that the Academy used to to, to take chances on. 
Pulp Fiction's nominated, you know, and you said that's, that's, you know, got rape scenes in it. So like, I understand what you're saying. It's just the way it's but you, you You know what I mean, right? It doesn't I know feel you like, mean. An, I'm, I'm, I mean, the definition, we can, we can get into a whole conversation of what it means to be a quote unquote Academy movie. Which but, would be a good conversation for later. But yeah, you, you know, a hundred percent what I mean is that it definitely doesn't feel like an Academy movie, especially see, to you. But like, see, like you're not, you've already specified in this um, episode that you aren't really into those seventies movies. But now when I go to you, Adam, and I talk about Marathon Man, and I talk about Taxi Driver, and I talk about, you know, even something like Dog Day Afternoon, mm-hmm. it kind of feels like that a little bit. Um, yes, I get what you're saying, but it's the sum of all the parts, too. I mean, the directors, they are really awesome directors. Well, Tony, is that one that you, that, that you find that... A classic, or you think that other, find, people, would, other people go, will find go, it as a classic? I would go both ways. Okay. Because if you go in, I'm looking right now, I mean, it was said at the time it was a problem that he wasn't nominated. It wasn't like people didn't say, well, why isn't he nominated? This is a small movie. No, people said she should have been nominated. So, like, that's the thing. It wasn't like I'm just creating this narrative. But that being they, said... I also feel like it was a really deep year for... Best actors. I, I mean, it he, he maybe true. You know, and that could be too. You know, I mean, that's the thing is that I just like to look at different, different things for, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a different performance for for an actor, I guess. But you know, he he, that, he did a good job. You know, I got into this little side note. Me and my friend got into uh, a discussion a long time ago, and you, and you guys might not agree with this because you're talking about Adam Sandler playing a kind of kind of deviating from his normal stuff and playing a different type of role, which he was very good. You know, like in things like you know Punch Drunk Love, he was very good, and it was yes. kind of different from what he was used to at that time. Um, we were talking about Leonardo DiCaprio and Denzel Washington. And I'm the same level as Adam Sandler. <laughs> and I'm the reason why I'm bringing that up is because I think because we're talking about like Denzel Washington's a great actor, but it seems like his range isn't as good as like Leonardo DiCaprio. Leonardo DiCaprio can play several different types of characters, whereas Denzel Washington's always played Denzel Washington, no matter what role it is, basically, with the exception of maybe like Flight or something like that, kind of got away from it. But other than that. It's the same type of like role, whereas Leonardo DiCaprio, I think, was like he's gone through so many different types of roles, comedic roles, serious roles, whatever. And uh, I think Adam Sandler showed that he can deviate and have better range than a lot of people, you know, think he can because. Well, his next movie that he's got coming out, and he's going to be in the Safdie Brothers' next movies, as I'm sure that they're going to try to even use that more. So we'll see if it either goes. Sometimes it goes well when you try to tap into that, and sometimes it doesn't go so well. But then we'll also see if he goes back to, I mean, when's the last great comedy that he made? The Waterboy? The Waterboy. I mean, it's, it, is, he gonna, is he going to do that again, or, or is he doing these movies because he can't? he's not? doing good comedies anymore it's, it's tough because like netflix literally threw so much money yes. at him to do these yes. like crappy netflix yes. movies yeah um i mean two it's changed those and i guess honestly that's why uncut gems throws me for such a loop is because of what you just said all those crappy netflix movies and then this movie's like just in the middle of all those movies it's kind of weird <laughs> 
I mean, you're right. To Sandler's credit, every once in a while, like he'll do these more serious stuff. Like he did the Meyerowitz stories, as you mentioned before. He did Punch. Do you think he does better serious than Will Ferrell? Yes, because I never buy Will Ferrell's series. No, I don't either. I don't buy it. Either. Did you see that um, Apple TV show he did with Paul Rudd? No, but I wasn't really feeling the trailer from what I saw. It was yeah. Good. I, well, my wife and I, we saw like the first four episodes and then it just kept being the same thing. Yeah, that's um, kind of what it seemed. But like, it's, it's also so frustrating where you see a movie with Kat, or see some a project with Catherine Hahn and Paul Rudd and Will Ferrell and they're all trying to like play it serious. It's oh, like, just know. just make another comedy, guys. <laughs> oh, you know what, Tony? I just thought about that movie that I was trying to think of earlier, Stephen King one. I don't know if you mentioned it or not. It was actually a mini series because it was a stand I didn't like, and it was um the Langoliers. Yes, the Langoliers. That was because that was the one Dean Stockwell was in, and uh, I, I did you know I like Dean Stockwell, but like that was the only thing I liked about that. I didn't like okay. that very much. No, that wasn't that, that wasn't, wasn't a good adaptation, but whatever but, but i think we covered a lot of ground tonight what what, right. what do you think i think we covered so much ground that uh if we cover any more ground my wife's gonna text me and say when are you coming up uh and she's gonna get mad at me so we gotta end this thing uh, <laughs> yes. adam thank you so much for joining us it was a pleasure thank you so much my man thank you um, adam Give- tony i really appreciate it um when well, Tony first mentioned this to me, yeah, it, it was very, very exciting to me, and I'm glad I could be on. And uh, if my schedule allows it, I'd, I'd love to be on as much as I possibly can if you guys are willing to have me. Yeah, definitely, my man. We'll definitely talk about it. I'll give out your Twitter handle one more time. Is Adam is absurd 34 Awesome. I'm Adam K. You can find me at Millennial Socks, uh, which is why Tony, which you can find him at Chelsea 01, kept calling me a millennial if you didn't for some reason know. To help differentiate between the atoms. Yes, uh, that's you, how I was doing it because I didn't want to start going Adam, 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 Adam. No, I gotcha. I gotcha. You uh, can find this podcast at the hookup 18. Um, if for some reason you don't know, you can find us on Spotify and Apple. Adam again, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. We absolutely will have to find time to get you on again. Awesome. Until next time, we've been the hookup on film. Peace out, everyone. Peace out. Thank you. Thank you, my man. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go. We don't have to go home, but really quick, um, starting next week, we're going to have a little bit of an after show. Um, today, what I wanted to do on the after show, really quick, it's not going to be long, is I just wanted to talk about a show that I definitely think is worth your time, and it's called The Staircase, and it is on HBO, a really, really, really good in-depth show on a true crime that happened. Um, Colin Firth stars in this show. It is um, His performance thus far is Emmy-worthy. But what I wanted to say is, is it's on HBO Max and definitely worth checking out. And again, thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week.